0: Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. All right, we'll go ahead and and, uh, get going. I'm going to catch you up to speed. If you don't know where we've been, you don't know where we're going, and some of you may have been here all five previous weeks, and you still don't know where we're going. Today it's going to get... Really practical now that we've got the theory set up. So let me back up and tell you what we've been talking about slowly for the first five weeks and we'll gain a little momentum tonight. Uh, We started by asking ourselves, what is a disciple? Do you remember the one-word definition of a disciple? We can spiritualize disciple and turn it into, you know, it's got to be something about Jesus, but actually the word disciple is a follower. It's someone who places themselves in position with somebody. And they allow that person to be their mentor. They allow that person to speak into their life, whatever terms you want to use. So we started by saying a disciple is a follower. And there were three metaphors. Now, I'm gonna. if you don't remember this, that's okay. Because I've been told, and I think it's true, you learn more from failing an exam than you do from passing one. Because when you miss a question and you see it in red, you're like, oh, I remember that she said that or he said that at that point. So if you get stuck tonight, I'm not belittling or making fun of anybody. I'm trying to trigger if there's any memories, okay? So, there were three metaphors about being a disciple. And we talked about those three. And then I said, just go home and see how these fit in your mind. Does anybody remember what three metaphors Paul uses for discipleship? You can cheat in your notes if you need to. If all your notes, say are boring, then you can't cheat on your notes. You just need to fake it. Marriage. Marriage was one of the metaphors, yep. That being a disciple of Jesus is like a marriage. It's being in a covenant relationship for life. A walk. a walk. That's the most common definition Paul uses of being a disciple, is you're walking with him, you're following him every single day. And then the other one was? Building. So those are the three metaphors that Paul uses regularly in his writings to churches. Why are we studying Paul's writings to churches? If, if I'm going to answer the question for you through the duration of this term... Uh, what does it mean to be spiritually mature and how do we grow in spiritual maturity? Why in the world are we spending our time on Paul's writings? (laughs) It's a great question. (laughs) Okay, We're spending time in Paul's writings because Paul was writing to communities of people on how to grow in the fullness of Christ. Remember Ephesians chapter 4. That our ultimate goal is to work together and contribute all we can contribute so everyone comes into the fullness of Jesus Christ as a mature follower. So spiritual maturity cannot be separated from the life of the community. It's not an independent thing we do. I, I can't separate from all of you and become the man God's created me to become. And we're going to talk more about that, and it gets more practical. Like, I'm going to give you six things tonight that the Apostle Paul has identified are incumbent upon you if you want to grow spiritually. And they're not optional. It's not a menu that says, well, I don't like green things, so I won't eat any vegetables. No, these are the things that we'll find in the Scriptures that if people want to go deeper and become more associated with Jesus, and here's the negative, I'll be honest with you. The negative is, it's going to sound like what we preachers tell you you should be doing. And deep down inside it's okay to walk out of here tonight going, but how come I don't want to do those? How come I struggle with those? That's part of this maturation, right? With children, do you allow children to choose what they want or what they like or dislike, or do you teach them how to like it? This I promise, I'm only going to use one family story tonight. I'm going to prove to myself I can do this. Uh, my father used to say there's three things you're going to do, and you don't get a choice. You're going to go to school, you're going to go to the dentist and you're going to go to church. And he said, because they're all good for you. And you don't have to like them. They're still good for you. So we went to church, and we went to the dentist, and we went to school. And I appreciate them enforcing that in me. They didn't let a child decide what it needed to do to become mature. So the things I'm going to share with you, I don't think you're going to be antagonistic, but some of us are going to go, I've tried that, and it doesn't work for me. No. Try it again. Because maybe now is a better season for you to grow in this way. So, we talked about the three things, or how does God measure a life according to Paul's writings? Real simple, faith, hope, and love. Now, we spent the last three weeks defining those, so when we're using these terms, we're talking about the same things. So, does anybody remember, you you may be to week three and you're already looking, what are the three ways faith is used in the New Testament? There's three distinct ways that word works. Okay, it's a body of truth or a body of belief. Okay, so we call our faith in what we believe. What does the Bible teach is? What does the Bible teach isn't? What does the Bible teach is good? And what does the Bible teach is harmful? So that, that's what our faith is based on, the truth of Scripture. What's another usage of faith? Salvation. Yeah, salvation. It is a thing that saves us. We are saved by our faith in the grace of Jesus. And the last one is probably the most common use of it and how we're using it in this class. It's a growing Christian experience. It is something that you live and demonstrate each and every day, not just something you say. It's not something you quote, it's not a memory verse, it's not a creed. It's an actual demonstration of it. So, 18 year old Mark is in Bible college, incredibly immature, spiritually and emotionally. I'm in college, I'm away from my parents, I'm enjoying my freshman year. Not Probably not crazy like Animal House enjoying it, but on a Christian college, I'm testing the limits of every rule on campus, and me and my buddies were. And we stayed out after curfew, so let me tell you how long ago I was in college. We had a 10 o'clock curfew at our college, you had to be in your dorm room at 10 o'clock they would lock the girls in the girls' dorm for fearful that we bad boys would touch them or something. And so the girls were locked away, and so the boys all went in the room and listened to music and ate food and and slipped out the back of the campus and broke curfew. And I'm thinking, curfew's not a big deal. Well, my advisor was our literature professor, George Brown, probably one of the most instrumental men in my life. And we come into class, and he decides to open our lit class freshman year by saying to this, Mark, Larry, Bill, stand up. And we all stood up in class, and he goes, did you skip curfew last night? And we're like, no, we were on campus at 10. He said, did you stay on campus? <laughs> we went, no. He said, I was on campus at 10. I was in my room at 10. He said, but did you leave campus? Yeah. Where'd you go? Went to the 7-Eleven. What'd, What'd you do? We bought pizza and bought Big Gulps and stayed out till 2 in the morning and walked back on campus. He goes, I know. I couldn't sleep. I was walking through the other neighborhood. I saw you three walk through someone's yard back onto campus, and we were busted. And then he asked me this great question. In the midst of all that, and we're laughing because he's not mad at us, but he's going to turn us into the dean of students, and I'm going to get fined. It was a $25 fine. Now, extrapolate that out from 1983 to now, and it's like $3,000. <laughs> so I know I'm going to get a two-five. i am going to get fined. And George asked me this question. I remember it to this day. I use it all the time with guys younger than me who are bullheaded and are going to do it their way. He says, what is it about your relationship with Jesus that allows you to disobey him? And there is no answer to that question that's appropriate. So he said, so you get to break curfew. And I said to him, it's a stupid rule. I paid to be here. I'm 18 years old. I didn't have that curfew with my mom and dad. And I'm giving him all these reasons. And when I'm hearing myself, I'm like, go, Mark. You're getting it. (laughs) And he looked at me and goes, but the rule on campus is 10 o'clock. And you signed a piece of paper that said you'd abide by the rules. Now, the problem was they had you sign it when you signed admissions papers before they gave you the handbook so any lawyer who's worth this snot can get me out of that one but he looked at me he goes those are the rules here and then he said to me if you don't like our rules go home but he said but I don't understand if you're a follower of Jesus why breaking the rules is okay for you that was a hard it took me two years to swallow that lesson and then they made me an RA which was so ridiculous because they're like you know how to break all the rules you'll catch them I'm like you're right I will use my evil against them it will be good So, what does this all have to do with it? It's a growing Christian experience. I am grateful that I went to the college I went to. I'm grateful there were men like George Brown who wasn't enamored with whatever talent I thought I had. They just called me out right now and said, you're not ready, you're not ready, you're not ready. But the best part was, a church called me and asked me to be their youth minister, and I was like, I'm not ready, I'm not ready, I'm not ready. And George Brown met me in the hallway and he goes, take it, you need this. And he goes, you'll do this. And he's been a mentor of mine ever since. Phone call away all the time. Because he cared enough to deal with a growing Christian experience, not a set of beliefs. Because most guys, when they go to Bible college, they're just given credit for being good kids. And George is like, You, my friend, are not a good kid. So we're going to work on you. And he chose me, and it was a good thing. So, how do we measure faith? What do you believe in? Do you trust Jesus? And are you willing to live it out and experience it, even when it's difficult and inconvenient? How do we measure hope? Well, remember what I tried to get to you that very convoluted night, and I'll own the fact that I wasn't as clear as I probably should have been. When we talk about what hope is, hope is not in the strength of what you believe, it's in who you believe. And when we talked about that, we talked about it's the steadfastness of Jesus. It's the assurance that he can protect me. It's godly and righteous living. Our hope is not based on our strength. It's not based on our mindset. It's not based on how I can endure difficulties. Hope in Jesus, is based totally on Jesus. So you've had someone in your life whose words you trusted. Every single one of us can think of at least one person in our life, if they gave you their word, it was good, right? That's You have hope. If their word's enough for you to trust it, if someone says, I will pick you up at 10 o'clock, and it's 9.59, and you're standing outside, and it's cold, and you don't want to be alone, and it's a little bit dark, and you feel threatened, uh, you either believe that that person's coming, and you stay there, or you do what? You take off and find your own safety. Hope is believing that Jesus will be faithful and keep every promise he's ever made. And every now and then when you wonder if he'll keep his promise, I often think of Abraham lifting the blade and about to sink it in the chest of his son. He was so committed that he knew Isaac would come off that mountain one way or the other. So then we talked last week or yeah, last week about how do we measure love. And because the, uh, Paul says, of faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. Does anybody remember why it's the greatest? The greatest of these is love because God is love. God doesn't do love. God doesn't offer love. God can't help but be love. Everything he does is motivated from his love. So our faith and our hope is always grounded on the fact that God is loving toward us. So we trust him and we respond to him because he's been good to us. And we learned last week that love is not a feeling and it's not uncontrollable. Love is a choice and it's actionable. To say you love is far demonstrated more by what you do than what you say or think. And then we ended last week with just some examples from Paul's writings, especially to the churches in Rome, about what are acts that demonstrate Christ's faithfulness to us. It's when we accept one another, when we commit ourselves with loyalty, when we encourage others, serve people, and forgive others. So we have this model that Paul is teaching us what spiritual maturity is, but instead of the American way where he gives us this mountain to climb or this animal to skin or this hold our breath for 30 seconds to prove we love him, Paul doesn't do any of that. He says, no, actually, the way you grow spiritually is when you're sitting at tables like you're sitting at tonight and you're actually caring for, loving, and serving the people around you, even if they annoy you, even if they're pain, even if they fight you, even if they make it stressful that you are not controlled by your circumstances, you're controlled by your faith, your hope, and your love. And so no one, you've probably said this to your children, you probably have children who are easily swayed toward the crowd, and then you probably know children who are not. You have children that will go, if there's a big crowd and everybody starts running, I've got two boys, one will run toward the crowd, one will run away from the crowd. But I've told both of my boys, you'll never, ever be able to look me in the eyes and say, I did it because somebody else did it. Because I know both of their souls. No, you did it because you chose to. Peer pressure is an excuse. Every one of us is strong enough to walk away. Now, it's easier to say that, knowing there'll be moments that they'll slip. But they're always going to remember, you can't come back and blame anybody else for your own choices. We're all responsible. But community is what allows us to stay tight with that. So what I want to do now is let's go to tonight's lesson, measuring our, our church unity by God's standards and how this is a communal thing, not a private thing. And so what what you'll see here is by looking through the book of Acts, and and I'm going to insult some of you, and I don't intend to, but let me be honest. I'm going to act like you don't know what the book of Acts is like so you understand why I'm using that primary. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, was commissioned to write, he wrote a two-volume set, one on the life of Jesus and what happened to the disciples that were trained by Jesus. One's called the Gospel of Luke, and the other's called the book of Acts. Now, we call it the book of Acts, but it's actually better to be defined as the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Disciples. What did they do? So I've told you, faith, hope, and love is actionable. And if you want to grow in spiritual maturity, it's not doing things to do things. It's doing things because you believe that Jesus is right and good for you. The book of Acts of the Apostles was written about the early history of the church, and then Luke takes off into this guy named Saul, or Paul. And he tells his story. That's the background. Why are we looking in it? Because when Jesus left and the Holy Spirit started to lead people to discipleship, they acted out faith, hope, and love, and they did it in groups, not just individually. Now, you will see moments in this history book called the Book of Acts. You'll see moments where individuals like Stephen stood up and Peter stood up and Lydia stood up and Ananias and Sapphira, not so much. And you're going to find out that everyone was accountable for their choices, but it was always gathered together in groups. And I just want to say this, and I I don't know what that inner monologue is running through your head, but I want to be careful. I want to be very, very cautious that I never really sound like a preacher unless it's Sunday morning and I'm in a text. And you could hear tonight's lesson like, all he's trying to do is get us to come to the church building more. Absolutely not. Please trust me on this. Because the church that only gathers here isn't doing any different out there, and where the church really needs to go is less meetings in this room and more meetings in your living rooms and someone else's living room and at the coffee shop and at the restaurant, and that is my heart about this. Uh, I've had to readjust my whole schedule to get off this plantation out here. Never been at a church where you only come to Orinoco by no one comes here on you know no one's passing through Orinoco. They're either going somewhere else or they live here. So to have a church located away from the traffic patterns of people in the world, we're missing the opportunity of the people in Joplin and, and CJ and Carthage and all around us who are actually struggling and don't know that there's this weird church out in the middle of nowhere that looks like a Sam's Club. So we've got to take the church on the road. The best metaphor I ever heard about the church, and I've loved this because my dad worked for United Airlines, was this preacher Reggie McNeil stood up and said the church ought to be... an airport hangar and people come and they get on flights and they go places. Nobody goes to an airport and hangs out. Nobody spends a day at the airport watching other people fly away. And if you do, you're weird. Everybody goes to the airport to do what? To end up somewhere else. I love that imagery of it. That's what the book of Acts is showing us. They went out. They didn't stay and ask people to come to them. So here we go. So all that set up, here's some things, and I don't think any of it is going to surprise you. But I want to talk with you about it and see what you think. So vitality and community, according to the Bible, is demonstrated and experienced. That's two things I want you to see. It's something that you and I do, and it's something that we receive. The first is a learning experience with the Word of God. A learning experience with the Word of God. You're going to notice that Acts chapter 2 is very formative for the early church. One of the things God did in all of his brilliance is God didn't tell us how to do church. There is no liturgy. There is no formula in the Bible of how a Sunday morning is supposed to operate. There are, what, at least 10,000 churches in the Joplin area, or so it seems. And you can walk in any one of them on a Sunday morning, and you'll see common things, and you'll see uncommon things. It's kind of like you have a family dinner... Your family dinner is going to be different than our family dinner, but we're going to have certain components that are the same. You're going to do Thanksgiving different than my family does it? Some of you don't have sweet potatoes? and You're wrong. If you don't have sweet potatoes, it's not Thanksgiving. But that's okay. You get the right to be wrong. And so you'll have that in your home. After, after Sunday, I need to start saying, that was meant to be a joke. Okay, so nobody walks out of here going, he's the worst thing ever. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, it says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Someone give me a good English translation the way that we would use steadfastly today. What's the equivalent word? They were consistent. I'll take that. It wasn't every now and then. That they took the teachings of the apostles seriously. And they wanted to grow, that they believed that there was a truth that they needed to learn. In Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Acts chapter 2 is that chapter where the church started on the day of Pentecost, and, uh, and Luke is recording for us what they held together. After the Holy Spirit descended on the day of Pentecost, the Apostle Peter stood to preach, interpreting what happened by referring to prophecies in the Old Testament. He demonstrated that Jesus Christ, whom his own people had rejected, was indeed their Messiah. So you can see that Paul stood up, or Peter stood up and preached, and he said, listen, the Old Testament scriptures say this. And so they poured themselves over the Old Testament scriptures. You might remember the story that Luke tells about Jesus after he's resurrected. He looked different. I don't know what, I can't explain how he was, but they didn't recognize him physically. You might remember the story. He's walking down the road with two people. They're having a conversation and they're talking about what happened in Jerusalem and how this Messiah guy got killed and how they don't understand it. And they sit down for dinner and they invite him into the house and Jesus sits down. He takes a glass of wine. He breaks bread. I don't know if he did it with a smile on his face. But the minute he broke the bread and handed it to him they're like, oh no, it's you. And then it said Jesus fully explained from Moses on what the scriptures had said he would do. And as he was explaining the Old Testament, they were going, you did that, you did that, you did that, you, you did it all. And then it says Jesus disappeared. It's kind of the bad end to a good meal, isn't it? So what you can see is the Old Testament scriptures are not for us to dismiss like, well, that's just weird stuff and so we don't talk about it anymore. Actually, the Old Testament gives us, helps us understand the New Testament. And they poured themselves into these scriptures. Acts 2.41, great conviction came into the hearts of a great multitude of Jesus' fellow Jews. They were like, oh my goodness, God said he would do this, and Jesus did that. It's probably fair to ask the question, how come people don't see what God's doing all around them? And uh, the answer biblically is they're blinded. They're, they don't believe in supernatural, or God's not doing it the way they want Him to do it. I say every probably every one of us has had a moment of frustration, haven't we? Can we be honest enough to go? There's moments of frustration. If God would have just done this, it'd have made my life easier, and somebody I love would have followed Him. If He'd have just done this at that one moment in time, I asked Him to. And Paul says we see dimly now, and one day we'll see face to face. We know dimly, and one day we're going to go. That's why I think C.S. Lewis has the best expression. He said the most common expression in heaven's going to be, "Oh." like oh he he did it for that reason the same reason on the road to Emmaus when they had dinner that night they were like oh my goodness it's you and they had no idea so Paul you can see some some passages I've just put down there for you and some understandings of those passages to to references that the church took the word of God seriously so what do we do with that this is where we could be slightly interactive tonight if you choose to be How do you have a learning experience with the Word of God? And and here's the way I want to lead the discussion, if we're going to have one. There's no uniform way. I'm asking you, how do you connect with the Word of God? How have you connected in the past? Some of us are visual learners, and some of us are audible learners. Okay. Now, some of us, when I'm talking, or I'm... uh, Saying something, you can see. Tell me if you're this. Can you see the words going up in a screen in front of your head? You actually see like a teletype of what someone's saying? Is anybody else in the room but me who does that? <laughs> so when I had to learn dialects for any play that they, my mom forced me to be in, if I had to learn a dialect, I would write it out in my head visually right out here. I could see how the word was broken down. I could mimic people, but I would take the words and I would rewrite it the way they actually said it. And I could mimic the way they spoke simply because I'm a visual learner you write things on the board when I take an exam I'll go back to where you wrote in the corner of the board it was kind of slightly leaning this way you're a visual learner some of us learn in an auditory fashion we remember what it sounded like and others how many of you get bored reading? it's difficult reading okay. how many of you love to read? you can escape into a book and get lost so I stand up here on Sunday say, you ought to be in the word of God and some of you are like tried it, failed others are like disinterested I hate reading. Both of my boys used to say this. I hate reading because you haven't found what you love to read yet. As soon as you find a topic you're interested in, it won't feel like reading. And they're like, sorry, family story. I lied. Second one, I'll quit. <laughs> Brain's like, I hate to read. And I said, I go through his history. The kid's on Wikipedia he'll hear me say a name and he goes on Wikipedia and reads the story of the guy's life. He's like, yeah, he died in 1974. I'm like, how do you know that? I was on Wikipedia. I don't want to tell him most of it's not true. But anyway, I'm like, dude, you're reading. You're researching. You are interested in reading. He goes, well, that's not really reading. <laughs> no, because I said when you learn to love to read, it doesn't feel like reading. In fact, those of us who love to read, when you look at the clock and it's 10.30 or 11, you're like, oh, i got to get up early. You're like, I'll skip work because you love to read. So when I tell you I have a living experience with the Word, what does it feel like for you? How do you engage the Word of God in a meaningful way? I'm really curious how you do it. Pardon? So you put yourself in the story. Try to experience it that way. And there's parts of the Scriptures that lend itself to that and other parts. It's like, you can't. Do that in Leviticus. And you're a miracle worker. (laughs) Yeah, because I don't understand why. If it has a split hoof and eats grass, you could... I don't know. It doesn't make much sense. It did back then. What are some of your other experiences with this engagement with the Word? When the Word has been rich for you, what's been taking place? Yeah. Yes, take notes. You take notes. Do you ever share those notes with somebody or talk to somebody about them? Uh, yeah, my sister. Yeah. I know from an education standpoint, if I can get you to write something down and have a conversation with somebody else about it within 24 hours, your retention level goes up 80%. So I'll tell you, my engagement in the Word is, I have found for me, and this was all the way back before I even thought I would be a preacher, if if I'm going through a text thinking, how do I explain this to a fourth grader, I can remember most everything. When I just read it to read it, I can run my eyes over every page. I had a professor who used to take attendance by saying, did you read the entire assignment for tonight? And I would always say, yep. Do you remember any of it? He never asked that question, and I'm grateful. Because I could run my eye over every word on this page and actually have read it, but no retention, no participation. It was just words. I think that's why some of us get frustrated with the Bible. We don't know what to do with it. And so what I encourage you, if you want to active write down, in fact, write down, is there a promise there? Is there a claim? Is there a command? What am I supposed to do with this? And then find somebody. Remember, because a spiritual journey cannot be fully performed alone. Find somebody. My buddy's in Fort Wayne. I text him regularly. Hey, I'm dealing with this text in Luke 14. Have you ever dealt with it? And what did you learn from it? And we just exchanged texts back and forth on this. And he's like, well, I always see it this way. And it's, it's helpful because then when I'm studying, I'm thinking, how am I going to articulate this to me and to other people? Not in a formal teaching. Most of the reading I do in the scripture, I never get to preach on. Does it make sense? Here's what I want you to do. Don't be discouraged, especially if you've tried and failed. Don't be discouraged to choose. Now, do you want to guess what the number one question a preacher is asked when he talks about being in the Word? Where should I start? And there's several ways to do it. But really, the question I would ask you is, what are you most interested in? Are you interested in the history of God's story? Are you interested in the story of Jesus? Are you, you know, I've often been told by professors, I remember asking this question, like, start in the Gospel of John. And as your pastor, I'm going to tell you, please don't start in the Gospel of John. Because the first two chapters are so de- theologically thick. Well, he was the Word and before time, and he was with God, and he was, he was God. And I'm saying, like, oh my goodness. Take Luke, or take Mark, and just begin to learn who Jesus is. And just spend time in that. And read it again and again and again. And don't be in a hurry. Don't choke down the whole Bible in a year. You'll have no retention. I read the, the novel Les Mis every year. And I read the abridged version. What I mean is all the French history of 1812 is taken out of it. I just want the story of Jean Valjean and what takes place. And it is about 1,100 pages. And I take an entire year to read it. And I don't want to say this you think I'm some noble, you know, like sipping wine, you know, in a gazebo somewhere. That's not who I am. But I actually enjoy it because Victor Hugo was so brilliant with his words. And if the 19-year-old Mark heard the 50-year-old Mark talking about reading that book, he would laugh at me. But I learned the discipline of good writing helps you think better. And it helps you process better and speak better and do things. I don't do it professionally. I just do it because it's like I'm a better person for having gone about that story of redemption. A beautiful story about a man redeemed who loved people because of it. It's powerful. And it sure beats the sports page. All right, number two. A relational experience with one another and with God. A relational experience. And we're going to talk about this in week seven if you hang with me. And that is, there are over 61 another passages in the New Testament. We're going to look at several of them. How do you live in community? Back to Acts: 242. And they continued steadfastly in the Apostles' doctrine and fellowship. What does that word mean? First of all, you learn tonight that if you want to grow spiritually, you need to know what God expects of you. How do you get what God's expectations are of you? You read the scriptures. What does he asked me to do? What's he promised me he's going to do? Who is he? Who am I? He knows our struggles. Who's Jesus? What was the solution to that? You can find that anywhere. Jesus is in every page of scripture. The second thing is you have to be in fellowship. But what is fellowship? That word's not used anywhere else but church. And it's always followed by another word. What's that other word? Dinner. That's what we've turned it into, a fellowship dinner. Everyone brings deviled eggs and pie and fun desserts and we all sit around a table. Any of you grew up in a church that had fellowship dinners? It's one of the things I miss about the small church. Scalloped corn, homemade rolls, you know, pies that were created by humans and not factories. Fantastic. But it's not a fellowship dinner. What does the word fellowship mean for you? Someone give me some alternative definitions from our day. Okay, spending time together? Sharing. Sharing, Sharing. Sharing. okay. Chemistry. Okay. Yeah. My fellowship is with people that I have chemistry with. Yeah. That's kind of beyond our control. Except for the recording. So you're saying chemistry. So people that get you and you get them and there's... Re- My stepson, um, we just, We hit it right off. Okay, good. We have, we have really a good relationship with yeah it's just amazing but we just had chemistry and it met, and met Okay. What do people, <coughs> excuse me, what do people have to do to call it fellowship? What's the minimum requirement of activities? Talk. Pardon? Talk. Talk? What else? Together. Together? Get together. Yeah. yeah. Being in the same spaces? Mm-hmm. Is there an agenda? For the tape, I shook my head no, so they'd know the answer. No. Fellowship is an organic thing. It's what younger people than me call hanging out. And I really love the fact that when I was a kid in college, you would find a cute girl, isolate her from the pack, wear her down until she liked you. And now they get together in packs of 8 or 12, and they hang out. And then all of a sudden, you see two of them go, I think I like you. I think I like you, too. And then they leave the group. But the safest way to get to know someone is in a fellowship. Is the word friendship too cheesy to replace fellowship? Or isn't that what it is? And beautifully, and this isn't me playing with you, you'll find out biblically that most every time the concept of fellowship is used, food's involved. Because human nature says you won't eat with people regularly that you're not comfortable with. You just won't make time for that. But your friends, you eat with the same friends all the time, probably the same food in the same places because it's just a natural, organic relationship. Spiritual formation is found in fellowship as much as it is in Scripture. Do you see that here? The early church decided we need to be together, to encourage each other, to strengthen each other, to call each other out, to hold each other. This is what we do. Unfortunately, does the American church... Is it open to fellowship, or is it just open to gatherings on Sunday? We'll check the box. I'll come on Sunday... I'll hear the paid guy talk. I'm out of here. If it's 65 minutes, I'm going to start going, come on now. If it goes a little bit longer, I'm like, we got plans. Am am I making fun of it? Yeah, because the American church has made it so convenient that growing up in a church in Indiana of 120-some people, we were the last people to leave every Sunday. Oh, my gosh. My mom and dad could talk to the wall. And we'd be standing outside, and it was cold. We'd be in the car listening to Casey Kasem Stop 40, just hoping this nightmare ended. And now as a pastor, I'm like, oh my goodness. It's funny for me, when I get to stand out in the hallway, you would think there's a vacuum when those doors open. I mean, people are sucked out of here. They don't even stop, just right out there. And I realize it's a large crowd, and I don't dig large crowds either, so I'm not sure I would hang out with a thousand people I didn't know. That makes my skin really nervous but man i watch those doors open and people are gone and the only the only reason you all hang around is if it rains (laughs) because all the wives are looking at the husband going are you going to get the car or not (laughs) and so there we are but you know what's really missing in a church why we're trying to do small groups regularly because you can't have fellowship in this large of a crowd there's nothing flawed with the big church that can't be fixed with real friendships and people come here, they're like, I, I don't know anybody. Well, let's get you in a small group. Ah, I don't know. There's no way to solve your problem if you can't give a little bit. Now, can you be in a group full of weird people where you're like, I'm not comfortable here? Yes, you can. I get it. I get it. If my wife wasn't social, I wouldn't have friends. So I totally understand that there's a reticence to get involved in people's lives that you don't know. But developing relationships is hugely important. The Catholic Church had it figured out a long time ago. They built parish models. They would put churches in neighborhoods. And everybody from the neighborhood went to the parish. Now, because we're so mobile, some of you will shop for clothes up in Kansas City. Do you know how uncommon that would have been 50 years ago for people to drive up on a Saturday to Kansas City and turn around and drive back? A, because the road was two-track. And B, because people just didn't do that. They stayed locally. Now, and the church is struggling with what the culture is doing and that people are driving from Grove, Oklahoma, and they're driving from Neosho, and they're driving from Bentonville to come to this church. I'm like, why are you doing that? Well, we didn't like our old church. Stay local because you can't invite your friends to worship with you when you're driving 45 to 50 minutes to go to a place. Now, does that seem weird for your preacher to be saying, I'm not sure this is healthy? But I'm telling you, I'm not sure it's healthy because you don't develop real relationships. You're just getting a service you enjoy and then returning to a neighborhood that doesn't understand what you just experienced. Living in a cul-de-sac as a kid, when someone in the neighborhood had a death, every house on that block, I watched it year after year, would bring food, would take care of the lawn, would be there ministering to another. We're all so spread out. We work in different towns. We worship in different towns. It's just a trend we've got to figure out. I'm telling you, if you want to grow deeper, you've got to have Christian fellowship small group formal or informal every single one of us needs one because those are the people that call us out those are the people that ask for more those are the people that you know my best friends in life have said this to me more than anything else Mark knock it off and I'm like okay you're right when my best friends will tell me you're out of line you're, you're being too obnoxious just quit those are the people that care the other people just go <laughs> and then walk out of the room going I'm never coming back fellowship's important third thing A shared experience with material possessions. you think I'm dancing in your living room. You haven't seen anything yet. You want to go deeper, you're going to get uncomfortable. There is nobody who's accomplished anything, according to Theodore Roosevelt. No one who history remembers did not pay a great price to be remembered. Nobody that history remembers did not pay a great price to be remembered. Every single person struggled. Every single person was challenged. Acts two forty four. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone has a need. Valuable lesson. Bill Walker. He worked for UPS. He was the Michigan District Supervisor over all vehicles. He maintained the entire fleet in the state of Michigan out of Mount Pleasant, Michigan Central Office. Bill was one of the most straight shooting guys ever. He loved Heather, tolerated me. And I would I said to Bill one time I said, "Hey, I need to get a chainsaw." And he was just, "Why do you need a chainsaw?" I said I got a tree, I had a willow tree. You know, they suck up every ounce of liquid in everybody's yard for 9 miles. Every time you slam a door, five limbs fall down. It was driving me nuts. I said, I want to get rid of my willow tree. I need a chainsaw. He goes, why? I said, take the tree down. He goes, why do you need a chainsaw? I'm, I don't know how to say this sentence any clearer. And he looks at me and goes, you don't need a chainsaw. I'm like, you're not my dad. And I said, Mr. Walker, can I borrow your chainsaw? He goes, yeah. It's not what you asked. He said, you said you needed a chainsaw. I said, you don't need a chainsaw. I'm like, what are we doing here? And he goes, do you want me to cut down that tree? It's like, yeah. He goes, you don't need a chainsaw if I have a chainsaw. He goes, you'd buy a $400 chainsaw. You'd cut your arm off. We'd have to get a new preacher. And I'd still have to cut your tree down. I'm like, you're probably right. <laughs> That's exactly what he told me. And he goes, I'll come cut your tree down. You just be there and help me haul it away. What he actually taught me was a valuable lesson. Later, his wife, Sue, realizing he roughed me up, invited us over for lunch on a Sunday. And she goes, what he's trying to say to you in his way is he'd like to help you so you don't waste your money on a chainsaw you're going to use once. Love that guy. Came and he took down my big willow tree. He's sitting there the whole time. I go, do you want the wood? And he goes, no, it's garbage. What do I do with it? He goes, I'll take it to a place and get rid of it. Found out that he cut all that firewood up, stacked it for a lady who heated her home by firewood, but he couldn't tell me that because he's rough, ex-Marine, man's man. But I love that guy because I'd say to him, hey, I need to borrow your, uh, uh, your tiller for my garden. He's like, no, nah, I don't trust you with it. You'll break it. What was he over the next day? Tilling my backyard up in my garden. He was too, he was too rough to simply go, let me help you. But he taught me a valuable lesson. He goes, you don't need a chainsaw I have a chainsaw. I wonder how the church world would be different if we all said, you don't need a trailer. You can borrow my trailer anytime you want. In fact, I'll bring it over with my pickup and we'll haul your stuff. Doesn't that sound like what friends do? You know, you don't need your own X. If I have one, it's yours. When we read this, we get threatened. Like the preacher's going to go, according to this verse, I need to see your (laughs) W-2. I would never do that. And that's not what it's talking about. What it's simply saying is, I should be able to walk out in front of you on a Wednesday night and say, I know a young lady who's really struggling right now and she can't pay for counseling. Could we scare up enough money as a group to buy a couple of sessions for her so she can work through an issue? You know, you're all shaking your head. Yes, right now. Could everybody just help? When the school calls us, Web City or CJ schools call and say, I I love these stories. When they call and say, hey, we had a young lady who, she wet herself in school today. She got nervous. She wet herself. We don't have replacement clothes for her and she doesn't want her mom to know. And man, Maggie is in her car going over to the counselor saying, go buy her jeans or whatever and we've got it covered. I never feel more like the church when your contributions allow us to do that. I think that's why we're here. And I know every now and then someone says, yeah, but we need to make sure they're not taking advantage of us. I'll be square with you. I think we're here to be taken advantage of. And if one kid takes advantage of us, but two kids get served, I think that's exactly what the early church did. And you all know it, there is nothing more meaningful than doing something meaningful to somebody. Sue told me, Sue Walker, told me that when Bill took down that willow tree, it took us two days to do it, chopped it all up, hauled it all off. She said he walked through the house that night whistling. He would never let me know he got that much pleasure out of it. But he was like, "I got to use what I had to help a young guy and his wife. That's what I wanted to do. And I've always remembered that story. When I did his funeral, I told that story. I'm like, that's a good man. His chainsaw was mine. And at the end of it, I said, Sue, can I have my chainsaw back? And she said, no. So anyway, (laughs) ruined the whole funeral for me. All right, material possessions. They had all things in common. They sold their possessions and goods, divided them among all as anyone has needs. Is that socialism? Number one criticism of this text. It's creating socialism. How is it different? (coughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I like that. I've never heard it that clean and clear. Thank you. It's by choice. Socialism, the way it's depicted today, is not by choice. It's forced. But the beautiful thing is, I, I know this church. All you've got to do is stand up and say there's a need. And people are standing in line going, what is it? Let's knock it out. And you feel more motivated toward a need, right? I was taught as a young preacher that nobody wants to pay the light bill. None of you write a tithe check to the church so we have heat. Right? Everyone wants to cure cancer. We want to save the world. None of us want to pay the light bill. But at the end of the day, it still takes light and heat. And so I always tease my kids going, that's what we're paying for. We're buying the light bill this week. But people are looking for causes that matter. And you have to share your material possession. But I think the key to it is that you and I get to choose why we give and what we give to. And as long as it brings God glory, then whatever I have needs to be available to whoever needs it. It do you feel a little bit discouraged that sometimes you don't know the needs? So it just seems like we're just piling up money and hopefully it's useful rather than understanding that, like when Sherry puts out the right here, right now update. Do you all see that in the hallway when you're out there? If you ever stop, you'll see a slide that says, this week, like, this week they helped a a young mom, a single mom with some dental bills that she had to get taken care of. Yeah, that makes my tail wag. And I'm not saying that to, to tout us, but when I walk through and I go, good, good. My contribution helped do that? That's fantastic. You ever had tooth pain? And you got someone who can't afford to get their teeth fixed? Normally, my tooth pain is related to the dentist isn't open for three days. But here's a young lady who dealt with chronic tooth pain over and over, and we were able to help it because people dropped $1 bills in a plate. You took what you had and said, I hope it helps somebody else. That's the key to this. And we can also do that independent. But as we do as a community, it makes a difference. Okay, so let's back up. I want you to see that this is not just ideas. This is proven biblically to grow your faith. First thing is, you spend time knowing what God desires for us. Second of all, you spend time with other Christians to keep your focus. Third thing, you become generous. You realize, I want to honor God with whatever he's given me. That doesn't mean you give me your chainsaw. It just means you loan me your chainsaw so I don't have to have my own. Together we have it. Fourth thing, it's a shared experience with praising God together. A shared experience with praising God together. Do not, please, do not read music into that praising God together. What I had you do tonight was what it means to praise God. What good thing happened to you this week? And you all praised God whether you knew it or not. Unless you took credit for it. And then <laughs> we'll have another sermon. But when you're like, hey, a good thing happened to me this week. Someone was really kind to me or I had a bad relationship with somebody and we made nice or whatever the case might be. That's actually seeing the goodness of God work in community. And it's encouraging people. Because I imagine, not everybody around the table had a good week. But every one of us can find one thing we look back on and go, that was good. That was a blessing this week. And we should count them. Verse 46. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God. Uh, breaking bread from house to house does not mean the Lord's Supper, as you see practiced. It actually means just being hospitable. And hospitality is still an expectation of God. It's opening your home and taking care of people. It's, it's fellowshipping by being, creating friendships and commonality. I like Colossians 3.16. I have it put in here. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Uh, we address this briefly but just to be a reminder there's something about music I often because I think it's funny and most don't Uh, Christians are the only group of people in the world that get together and sing I really doubt you have any other group that you're a part of that you're committed to that actually gets together and sing first time I went to Heather's house for Thanksgiving it was amazing her whole family can sing I can't and the first time they went, they had a prayer. And I was thinking, here we go, time to eat. And I was all happy. And when they were done, they sang the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And they sang it beautifully. And the whole time they're all looking at me, I'm like, I don't sing. It was the weirdest thing ever, but it was beautiful. And Heather goes, does that make you uncomfortable? I go, no, as long as I don't have to sing. It was beautiful. And this family sang together. And I'm thinking, I never get together with my guys. And go, dude, let's go get some wings. And we get some wings. And before we eat, someone goes, Mark... Let's sing. We never do that. We never get together for the Super Bowl and go, hey, national anthem, Mark, take it. No, we don't do this. But Christians get together, and it's not an old habit. There is something about music. I could play a song from the 60s, and those of you who lived to that era could tell me where you were when you first heard that song or a special moment in your life that it connected. I can take you to any Lionel Richie song from the 1980s, roll your eyes all you want. And I could tell you where I first heard it, why it's in my iPod, and I still listen to it because it takes me back to college. You can take any Aerosmith song or REO Speedwagon song from the 70s and I can tell you where I was roller skating, how old I was, and who I was hanging out with. Music is a powerful thing. And you notice in the church, how many of you have that common experience when a song comes on, even if it's new, and it lifts your feet and makes you think of things that you're like, wow, where did that come from? When children are, I found this interesting, I was talking to a principal in the area, when children get rowdy at lunchtime, they put music on. And they don't put like elevator music on. They put music on because if it's an up song and they want the kids to do it, they'll find the kids will be singing together and having fun and smiles come on their face and kids that were about to duke each other out in the face are now sitting together belting out this Ariana Grande song. Music's powerful. Why would Paul tell us it's a part of our spiritual formation? Those of us that were raised in church that sing hymns, one of my favorite things here, and every now and then when they bust out a hymn that fits in the text, I love to be in the corner looking out in the crowd. I see people crying in church, and I'm not the reason, and I like it. You see people wiping tears, because what does it do? It takes you back. There are songs that we don't sing in church anymore, but I still play them on my iTunes all the time. Because I hear a certain song... Like I hear at Calvary, which you may know that song or not know that song. I hear that song. I'm standing next to a five foot four little Irishman who could not sing at all, belting that song out. He loved that song in church, and all my friends, we'd sit behind my grandma and grandpa or with them and giggle every time he sang because it was horrific. And I hear that song and it chokes me up because I'm thinking that is a shared memory with a man who taught me some faith. Let me read the verse again. See if it doesn't make a difference if it doesn't become a command and instead it becomes an extension of your heart, your history. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with great grace in your heart to the Lord. There's not a person in this room, I promise you, not a person in this room, if I gave you a piece of paper, said I want you to write down a song that you, when you hear on the radio, takes you back to a favorite moment in your life. And it could be anything. I remember the first time I walked home from school and this little girl grabbed my hand and freaked me out. We were in kindergarten and we were walking home and she grabbed my hand and my dad pulled up in his pickup truck when we were walking to the corner and he looked at me and he said, you want to ride home? And of course I did. She was holding my hand. I was frightened. And we got in the car, and Frankie Valley's My Eyes Adore You came on the radio. And I hear that song, and I think of that little red-haired, freckle faced girl named Angie who grabbed my hand on the way home from school. Now, I realized later, because we went all the way through elementary school together, she didn't like me. I was her friend. But according to television, any girl who grabbed your hand was about to kiss you, so I was scared to death. But I hear Frankie Valley every time, and that song comes on, and my heart smiles. A nice memory connecting me to people. Paul is saying music does that to us. But it doesn't have to be singing. You hear what he says? Psalms, hymns, poetry, those moments. Have you ever found when you get with your family, you tell the same stories you always tell when you're with your family? My my three brothers and I get together and tease my mom relentlessly. I know you can't imagine. But we pick on my mom to the point, she's like, boy, stop it. My dad is sitting in the chair chuckling. And we tell the same stories all the time. And she loves them so much, she corrects them. I didn't actually say that, I said this. And then we all laugh. We all laugh. Is that repetition bad? No, that repetition is healthy. Paul says, hold on to what's common and don't spend so much time on what's different. And if I may, let me pause away from being a preacher. Do you think our culture would be better if we stopped focusing on what we had dissimilar and we actually started to remember what we have in similar? And it seems like in our culture today, unless there's a war, we don't see each other as friends. We see each other as protagonists. But all of a sudden, our country gets threatened. Man, everyone's American. Like in the church, we have to be careful about that too. Our differences can't be our focus. One faith, one Lord, one hope, one baptism, and one God, the Father of all, over all and in all. Everything else is salt and pepper. Paul says, keep what's common together and sing about it. Praise God about it. Remember the good times. And and that matters. Number five. A personal witnessing experience with the unsaved world. A personal witnessing experience with the unsaved world. These will be a bit briefer because they're very specific, they're very technical. What do you have to do to be able to witness in a court of law? If you appear to testify in a court of law, what do you have to offer the court? Pardon? The truth. truth. And how do you have the truth? How do I know you're offering me the truth? Okay, You swear on the Bible. Does that actually keep people from telling the truth? And Probably not. What is the judge going to ask? Did you see what you're talking about? Were you there? No, but somebody told me it happened. Inadmissible. I've watched enough LA Law that I'm a good lawyer. If you're going to testify in court, you have to have first-hand knowledge. You had to see it. You had to be there. Well, can you identify the person who was there? No, it looks like her, though. Nope. Can you identify 100% who it is? Would evangelism, the big E word that weirds people out in church, would evangelism be different if you were only required to talk about what you've experienced? See, what's funny, in church we could get conversations going. Who's your favorite ball team? 60% of us in the room have one. And we'll talk about it. We've been to games. We know that this is why we love them. This is why we hate them. This is why we do what we do. If I said, what's your favorite theme park? Everyone go, oh, my favorite theme park's this park or this. Your favorite roller coaster. This one. Favorite restaurant. Favorite this. Last week, what's your favorite candy bar? And What movie would you have dropped in? You're all answering. None of you delayed. You know your story. A personal witnessing experience with the unsaved world is not a set of propositions that you pin someone to the wall with. Here's how you share your faith. Jesus means this to me. Why? Just answer why. So, has Jesus ever answered your prayers? You ever had a prayer that you're you're convinced was an answer to prayer? Yeah, share that story. Have you ever had an experience with Christ where you felt grace and forgiveness and hope? Yeah, share that story. So, you can't quote Leviticus 18 and 19, the Old Testament law, and how to treat one another. It's okay. Share your story. So, I'll say to my son, do you see this movie? Yeah. Should I see it? No. Why shouldn't I see it? Well, because you won't like it for this reason, this reason. He knows me well enough. I trust him. So, what do you think of it? I liked it for this, this, and this. And when I hear why he likes it, I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't like it. But his testimony affects me. When I said to my dad, Dad, why are you a believer? My dad choked up, and he was easy to cry. He was a very sentimental man, <clears throat> very easy to cry. And he started crying, and he said, well, I didn't really believe in God until I met your mom. And he said, and I knew she believed in God, so I want to figure out what she knew. And then she started just telling me why she was a believer in God, and, got to, and my dad said, I could believe that. And then my mom, being very bright, looked at my dad and said, no, you can't believe it because I believe it. You need to believe it because you try it. And then I said to my dad, so why do you believe in God? And he said, because I prayed and prayed and prayed for years for something, and about the time I gave up praying, God answered the prayer so clearly. I was like, that's good. So my my dad's evangelism was never you need to come to church. My dad would just talk to people about, I know God's real, and here's why I know he's real. And if you trusted him, he'd reveal himself to you too. Does that make evangelism less threatening? If we sat down and thought, what can I witness to? And if you take the previous four steps, fellowship, sharing, sacrificing, studying, you would have a story to tell. And if you want to go deeper, tell your story. As a speech teacher, one of the things I love to do for 10 years, nobody likes to teach speech class, but I chose to do it because I'd get to meet the freshmen when they came into the school, and I got to know who they were. Nobody wanted to teach a freshman class. I wasn't noble. I'm like, I want to know the kids here. So I started teaching speech and it's funny that there would be this young lady i can still picture her. she'd get up in front of class some of you experience this her face would go beet red and she'd start getting a splotchy neck just like total white spots all over her face and she could feel it her mouth would get all she'd be spitting out little white puff balls and i'd always smile at her and go hey you're doing great and she's like i'm just so nervous and i always do this because i was taught this by george brown the professor i mentioned at the beginning one girl got nervous in our class my freshman year, and George said, okay, stop. No, put your notes away. She said, what's your favorite movie and why? And that girl stopped turning red and white. She went back to her normal color. She took a deep breath, and she started telling us about Pretty Woman with Julia Roberts. And she t- told why it was her favorite movie, because she grew up in a rough background and everything. Before you knew it, George had to cut her off. He goes, okay, your time's up. And she's like, I talked for five minutes? And she's like, yeah. And then George said something on will forget. He said, we all have stage fright until we're prepared. And the minute you're prepared and you know what you want to talk about, you stop being nervous. And I want to say that to Christians. You have an interaction with Jesus. You, you participate in the church. You have a salvation story. You don't have to make it bigger than it is. Just tell your story. Because the people who love you believe you more than they believe me on stage on a Sunday morning because they see me on a stage with a microphone and they're thinking, well, yeah, he has to believe. And they hear you, who they really love, and all of a sudden they're like, wow. And one of the things I love about Christ Church, from a pastor's perspective, the hardest thing to get is people to invite their friends to come to church with them. Do you know what this church does extremely well? You all are unashamed to invite your friends to come to church. Talk about a privilege that I get. I've got you having conversations with people going, hey, this place helps me understand Jesus. Come with me. Your story is going to get more people. And you don't have to win 10,000 people. You just have to share your story. And look at the early church. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. They were being brought by their friends who told them about this Jesus. <clears throat> and then look at John thirteen thirty-five to remind us of last week. By this we all know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Okay, the last. And it's going to take me a bit to explain this because it's got two parts to it. A complete surrender to a supernatural process. So, you spend some time in the Word looking for God in it. Listening for His commands. Listening for His promises. Identifying who He is. You have a relational experience with other Christians that help you and hold you accountable. You have a shared experience with your material possessions. You become generous to help other people. You spend time thanking God and talking about God and singing about God and remembering the good things God did and you're unashamed to do that. You start sharing your story of what God is doing in your Bible study, in your prayer time, in your relationships. And then, number six seems odd. The supernatural process. What does that mean? You have to give God room to speak, to move. You have to look for Him. Uh, we were taught as kids, and we didn't do this enough, but I really love when my parents did it. Every now and then, when we were, probably because we were arguing at the table or doing something dumb, um, my dad would say, where would you see God this week? And he would just go around the room. Mark, where would you see God? And he'd make stuff up every now and then, but every now and then I'd have a real story to tell. It's like I invited my friend Wayne to church and he said he would come this Wednesday And Wednesday was just like here. It was a youth group and it was fun and you didn't have to sit in a chair and behave or be quiet. They let you run around and bang on each other and shoot baskets and then they gave you a 10-minute devotion and they sent you off and people think, well, that's not deep. You know what? As a sixth grade boy, that's all I needed because I got to hang with my friends around Christian people who had an influence on my life. But the truth of the matter is when we'd have these God hunts, my dad would always say, well, I was reading the Bible this morning." And uh, I read this story for the first time, and I think God showed me something, and it created an interest in this kid's heart to go, there's some things in there I have never seen. How did my dad find that? Like my dad, he would look at me and go, do you know that there's a guy in the Bible who has six fingers and six toes on each hand and foot? And I'm like, you're lying. He's like, nope, first one to find it. Gets to go for ice cream. So do you bribe people into the Bible? Yes, for ice cream you do. <laughs> At the end of the day, my dad triggered this God hunt. He just kind of set us up. We didn't do it very much, but when he did it, I remembered it. The supernatural process. You have to have a trusting commitment to the Apostles' Doctrine. In other words, knowing what God wants is not as good as doing what God asks. The supernatural process is you have to say, if God tells me to love my enemy, then there's a benefit to me and my enemy for doing this. I have to step out in faith.